0: This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David. Today's show we have Lily Liu, who is the co-founder of Earn.com. If you're not familiar with Earn, Earn was a platform that allowed you to effectively put yourself on there as an expert or someone who had knowledge and experience in a particular sector or a particular field, and people who were trying to find those people would actually effectively ask you for your time and enumerate you in a cryptocurrency. I used it a few times, it was really useful. And uh, effectively, a few, I think a few months ago, Coinbase acquired them. And so Lily uh, has a lot of experience uh, before Earn. She was in traditional finance. She was at Morgan Stanley, she was at McKinsey, she was at KKR Capstone. She helped build a 500 bed uh, hospital in China. Uh, She worked for a few family offices. I mean, she has a really, really deep resume. And so we were really happy to have Lily on. We talked about Bitcoin a lot. Uh, Lily is very uh, bullish on Bitcoin. We talked about it as a problem solver uh, in the store of value uh, kind of conversation and narrative. We talked about it being digital gold and being more accessible. And we also talked about the The reason why the difference between you know, for instance, China versus the United States in the way that we approach crypto is you know, in certain aspects uh, overseas they really are much more focused on earning your own your wealth, uh, whereas here we kind of view this uh, field and I'm not saying all of us, but it is more of a generalization. There's more of a kind of speculation, and kind of trading aspect, whereas overseas. Uh, people really view it as a means and something that helps them protect their assets in unstable uh, political structures. And so it was a really interesting conversation and went to a lot of different cool places. Um, we were happy to have Lily on. She has so much experience. You're going to enjoy it. So with that, remember, please, nothing on Base Layer is investment advice. Please do your own research. On the flip side, you'll hear from our sponsor, and then you'll hear the podcast with Lily. Enjoy. <music> today's family offices and hedge funds face a number of challenges when it comes to trading and managing their crypto portfolios on the trading front siloed liquidity opaque execution and questionable compliance deter entry on the management front spreadsheet and manual workflows are still the de facto solution these infrastructure and usability problems which have been long solved in traditional finance still need to be addressed in crypto. Lumina has set out to solve this problem. To find out more about Lumina, please go to lumina.app. This is David and this is Base Layer. We are so happy to have Lily Lou from Formerly of the founder and team of Earn.com, uh, Lily has been in crypto for a number of years, uh, but before that, Lily was also in traditional finance and one of the most sought after people today in crypto for the way that she thinks about the markets, the way that she has seen infrastructure being built within the market right now in crypto. We're going to have a great conversation. We had one a few days ago, which I found to be one of the most interesting conversations I've had in a while with someone in crypto. So, Lily, thank you for joining us.
1: Uh, Thanks so much for having me, David.
0: So, as I said, Lily, you have a really extensive background in more traditional finance coming from McKinsey, then to KK or Capstone, and then even some projects in China. If you can just kind of wind the tape back... I want to do a little bit more pre-crypto stuff and just kind of get a sense of what you were up to, what you did. And then we're going to go into that kind of moment when crypto started taking over and it became a really big part of your life.
1: Uh, sure, sure. I'd love to talk about that.
0: Awesome. So you effectively started your career at McKinsey. What were you doing there?
1: Um. Yeah. So, you know, if we go back a little bit further, kind of how did I even end up at McKinsey? Um. Honestly, it was a little bit by accident. Um, In college, um, I was a pre-med, and I also studied econ and IR because there was something in me that thought, you know, maybe I don't want to spend my entire 20s, um, uh, you know, on a very structured path and largely inside a windowless room. So, so, you know, I studied um, econ and IR as kind of my official majors. I took a lot of bio and chemistry uh, in physics classes. Um, but then kind of the theme throughout the uh, econ political science, um, bent was, uh, really, you know, Chinese development, right. Um, back in nineties and two thousands, even now it's like this phenomenal sort of transformation of, uh, of a country that has 1.3 billion people in it. And I was just really curious as to, you know, how that was, uh, how that started and how that was going and why, and just so many questions related to that anyways. So, you know, I was studying China, like a lot of my friends, um, and they, um, all of my friends who were studying China, um, they got these, you know, summer internships, uh, in Hong Kong. Um, at an investment bank and made ten thousand dollars, and I thought that it, that sounded pretty sweet. So I was like, okay, well, I should apply for those jobs as well. But I had no idea what you actually do at an investment bank. So I applied to Morgan Stanley and Goldman and you know uh, whoever else. And uh, Morgan Stanley, they uh, hired me. And when they called me, I remember um, a fellow named John called me. And he said, "Lily, we're doubtful about your interest in finance, but we'll hire you anyways for the summer." Wow. Um, <laughs> and that is how, uh, I do you say
0: thank, do you say thank you to that call? <laughs> oh, I,
1: I, met, I met him, uh, a few years ago when I first moved back to California, um, and really lovely guy. And, uh, uh, I mentioned that to him, and we laughed about it. And, um, so I, I was like, you know, the first time he called me, I had to call his assistant back and I said, what division was he part of? Um, and he, she said, investment banking division, very slowly to spell it out for me. Uh, and, um, and I had no idea really. So I thought, okay, great. You know, I'm going to, they're going to fly me to Hong Kong and I'll do all work hard for 10 weeks and I'll see how it goes. Um, and so I went and little did I know that, um, investment like IBD is typically considered sort of the better division to be a part of. At least it was in those days, might be different now. Um, and sort of more strategic and that's kind of where like kind of the first cut, um, of talent is at least the way people saw it in those days. Um, and, uh, so I did that uh, for 10 weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone else had been part of the consulting club and the investment banking club or whatever in their colleges. A lot of people from Penn who were, for whom that had been sort of, uh, in their kind of center line, uh, career aspirations. Uh, and for me, I rolled up, um, and what they also do in Hong Kong is because over the summer they have, uh, um, a smaller class of, you know, they're basically potential recruits. They share a resume book and then everyone kind of holds dinners and invites the people they're interested in. Now, because I had none of those things, other things on my resume, no one is interested in me, um, except for maybe one or two. But I didn't want to go for work for Credit Suisse if I was already at Morgan Stanley, which is higher up on the totem pole. So Their loss. what's that?
0: Their loss. <laughs> uh,
1: so I was like, well, I don't even want to go to the Credit Suisse dinner. Uh, and then what happened was, you know, this guy named Jason Lau, who was my fellow intern, uh, he got invited to all of them. And, uh, uh, and so he was like, Hey Lily, um, I'm going to, uh, McKinsey's tonight. You want to come? And I said, uh, okay, why not? I'm not doing anything else. So I tagged along with him and I met some people in McKinsey and then I decided to apply to McKinsey. Uh, and then, uh, not really knowing how banking consulting really sort of how they were very different. Um, I said, OK, well, I'm either going to rejoin Morgan Stanley in Hong Kong in IBD or I'm going to get a job in McKinsey in New York because that must be the headquarters for New York as it is for uh, for McKinsey as it is for banks. So um, so somehow I got a job at uh, McKinsey, New York. And I was like, oh, OK, well, I should take that one instead, because that was what I said ahead of time. And that's why I ended up at McKinsey. Um, so I wish I could say there was more. Uh, design and there was more intention and frankly a little bit more awareness um, as a 21 year old, but there wasn't actually.
0: <laughs> I mean, you, you you found your way, and I think everyone you know, especially for those out there, most people find their way. I found my way. I'm still finding my way. Anyone who thinks that they've found their way completely has still not found their way. Right. And so you know, oh. it's inter- it's interesting. So from McKinsey, then you go to KKR, Capstone.
1: Yes. And so, um, so, you know, it ended up actually being a really good fit for me, um, you know, just uh, fit for kind of the skills and like the, uh, the way that um, I think about things. And, uh, and I also thought it was a really great experience because um, as a, you know, young person, 21, 22 years old, um, you really, uh, no matter what, you need to have a little bit of like an apprenticeship experience in your first job. Right. Um, and a place like McKinsey, uh, knows that and invests a lot in, uh, in kind of making you a real person. So I learned a lot from that. Um, and then I, uh, I did two years in New York. I moved to the Beijing office. Um, during that time, I traveled pretty widely, worked in Southeast Asia for a while, worked to do some work in Europe, did some work in China. Um, and then, uh, so I spent about uh, a little over three years at McKinsey. Uh, and then that, and then it hit the, um uh, the, uh, the great recession. So let's say it was 2008. Um, and I was in China and I thought, okay, well, uh, I think this is going to be pretty tough, right? Cause China then was a little bit more of a peripheral market than it is even now. And typically those get hit harder in a recession. Um, and so, uh, I was kind of thinking about, um, where to go, uh, had some friends at KKR, got introduced, interviewed, got a job. Um, and, uh, Uh, And so I moved back to New York during Capstone, right, which is, uh, you know, it's certainly within a financial institution, but then the kind of the function of a KKR Capstone is to work um, uh, within sort of existing portfolio companies, improving uh, operations in order to add more value to uh, to the ultimate outcome of the investment.
0: By the way, these are no small feats. I know that you're talking about, oh, I went here and I went. You, you went from Morgan Stanley to McKinsey to KKR Capstone. These are no small feats by any stance. So it, it's an accomplished career early at this point before you even start going into crypto. But so you're at KKR Capstone, and then you're telling me that you actually helped build create uh, create a hospital?
1: Um, well, it was. Uh, I loved KKR. I met some people um uh, you know, through uh, one of the portfolio companies that KKR invested in, they were uh, building a hospital in China, uh, needed uh, to build the team, and so I became the CFO of uh, of that company. Um, in uh, in China. So I moved back to China, um, spent three years there, um, where we, you know, I consider it sort of my first startup, although it's very different from, you know, what you typically associate with a startup, which is, you know, more tech and software. Um, but uh, we showed up and we had this big plot of dirt, had some foundations drilled in it, and we had to build a hospital and basically open a hospital.
0: That, that's just amazing. By the way, I don't think You know, from my understanding, from hospitals to traditional kind of venture, I don't think you have to worry about the cost of, you know, acquisition, the CAC. I don't think you have to necessarily worry about that in a hospital setting. Um, So it's, that is just, you know, really, really, or maybe you do, I might be wrong. Um, But that is just, you know, super, super interesting because we talked to a lot of people in crypto and some of them obviously came from traditional finance and they've, they might've been investment banking, they might've sat on a desk, but you've actually helped, you know, build, Things prior to actually getting into crypto. So you're at the hospital. I think you said there were about 500 beds, give or take, that you kind of were able to build. Um, and then somewhere along this path, you found yourself in crypto. So, you know, talk to us about how that happened.
1: Um, well, uh, so I was, you know, headfirst, uh, knee deep, however you want to put it, in uh, the Chinese healthcare industry. And you know, it's one of those things that from a distance is um, really kind of interesting uh, from a macro perspective, right? You've got this, um, you know, pretty wealthy, increasingly wealthy country with uh, with pretty underdeveloped um, social infrastructure, especially from a relative standpoint. Uh, and so that was from a macro standpoint, a problem that uh, I enjoyed sort of working on and, uh, and sort of being a part of. But, you know, healthcare everywhere is inherently a risk, uh, a risk sort of um uh, risk averse and pretty conservative industry, which means that it moves really slowly. Right. Um, and so I kind of felt like I was part of this industry that was, you kind of knew where it was going to head, but it was going to take decades to get there. Um, and that's not really how I wanted to spend decades. Right. Um, and, uh, so, you know, that was contextually for me, something that was just, you know, personal preference. Uh, and then, I had some friends um, in Shanghai that I used to play poker with. One of them was Bobby Lee, um, who was one of the founders, uh, and then also the CEO of BTC China, later BTCC. Um, so, you know, he started to talk a little bit about Bitcoin. I remember the first time was, uh, was summer of 2013, and I didn't really pay any attention, because um, I thought that, you know, it was kind of PayPal, PayPal 2.0, right? It was kind of e-money. I thought, okay, well, we, we've already got that. How is that so different? Um, and then, uh, a couple of times, sort of more, I looked into it and then there was a lot of press in the end of 2013, uh, about, you know, uh, fraud and money laundering and drug money and all this kind of stuff. So I thought, okay, so this is either one of two things either really interesting or it's really, uh, or it's really just a scam. Um, and, uh, looked into it, read the white paper, um, and, uh, kind of jumped in from there. So that was about five years ago.
0: I'm always, and this is. There have been so many instances of people that are in crypto right now that it started at a poker table or that they played poker. So, are you a five card? What's your What's your game?
1: Um, well, we are playing te- uh, Texas Hold'em, but I'm not. A, Texas I'm not Yeah, I'm not a serious player.
0: Okay. Well, it's it, it, there seems to be a lot of people that have played, you know, poker or played cards or have, you know, kind of it's it's cards, it's video games and chess. Those for some reason that is a universal with a lot of people in crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting. Yeah. Um, so you're in China. Um, you've built a hospital. Now you're kind of getting a flavor of you know things on Bitcoin. You're you know obviously. A lot of people around that point in time were trying to figure out, yeah, is it real? Is it a scam? Um, you know, a lot of people for some reason around 2011 to 2013 were all trying to figure that out. But then you also, um, you know, for the family offices that listen to our show, you also spent some time advising and helping some family offices out there too, correct? <laughs>
1: Yeah, because um, I was—I, uh, you know, had a number of friends who were um, working in that industry, and so I was helping out with uh, with one, one of my friends who was making some investments, um, which were largely, um, you know, more traditional private equity and um, had really very little to do with even technology, much less early stage, and certainly not Bitcoin. Um, although interestingly, uh, one of the families work- we were working with um, has a coal mine and had considered opening a uh had considered starting to mine bitcoin back in 2014 but that was really the only intersection um so you know in those days that was uh bitcoin is largely seen as being um too risky a little bit scammy um uh, uncertain regulatory status so on and so forth so the two were very very far apart uh in 2014 right um and uh, and I think they've come a lot closer since as the sort of value proposition around Bitcoin, um, the kind of concept of cryptocurrency being more than potentially just uh, just digital gold um, has has really sort of taken on um, uh, greater proportions.
0: So you've had very intimate knowledge and you've been on the on the ground there in, in China and what we've seen is that there seems to be much more mining of bitcoin specifically out there versus here you know we've had a lot of regulatory uncertainty here in the states where you know the the administration whether you like them or you're not you know they have not necessarily pulled the curtain down on crypto here they've been fairly you know flexible if you will they seem to be doing a lot of listening um and so i'm curious kind of to you know from your perspective the two worlds, if you will, you know, the the world of crypto, crypto in China and the, and the surrounding region, the world here, how are they different or how are they the same?
1: Um, <clears throat> so I think that um, for consumers, uh, what crypto means is very different. Um, and uh, uh, so the cultural context uh, and kind of the consumer interest in cryptocurrency broadly defined is very different. Uh, and then also from the perspective of uh, of regulators, uh, they also have a different perspective on um, the sort of uh, the benefits as well as the risks and also the threats of of cryptocurrency, right? Um, and so uh, from the con- from the consumer perspective, there's obviously an interplay between those two, uh, between those two as well. So I would say from the consumer perspective, um, when you're talking about Asia, which you know first of all is a couple billion people, so there's a lot of diversity within that. Um, But, uh, you know, what I've noticed is that um, the speculative nature of cryptocurrency is probably its number one value proposition, actually, um, to a lot of folks in Asia. Uh, And I I would say there's probably two or three reasons for that. Uh, One is that there's just sort of a broader appeal of uh, this sort of, you know, speculating on uh, even outside of crypto, there's a much wider range of people who will trade penny stocks day trade penny stocks right um if you even just look at Macau um you know it goes up and down all to Las vegas but you know even a few years ago it was about six times the uh the revenue of Las vegas I believe um and uh and so there's you know maybe a little bit more um uh, of that sort of gaming uh, culture, gaming and speculative culture to begin with, right? That, le- that lends itself perfectly to crypto, because in crypto, you've got 24-7 markets, um, you've got an ever-expanding number of asset pairs that you can speculate upon, uh, and honestly, you know, part of it is being able to make money online, but then also it's just something that, you know, different people find to be fun. Uh, So I think that that, from a consumer perspective, um, is very different in, um, you know, in terms of market penetration in a place like Asia or in different places in Asia versus what you kind of observe in the U.S. population, right? Um, I think that's one. Uh, And then, you know, I think playing into that is that, you know, in a country like China, um, because you've got a lot of wealth and then also the sort of financial infrastructure and the investment products that you can access with that wealth has also sort of lagged the, uh, the sort of leaps and bounds and the overall sort of uh, uh, amount of wealth that people own, um, there's basically these sort of um, tight funnels for where people can actually deploy that capital, right? That's one of the reasons why real estate has really gone through the roof. That's also another reason why these kind of certificate of, uh, d- of deposit uh, equivalent products in China have also, have also seen this sort of ballooning of demand um, and regulators are, are also are also trying to sort of re-regulate that. Um, so you just have many fewer investment products for the amount of wealth that's been created. Um, and then when people also see sort of something like that's that has the return profile of crypto um, asset 2016-2017, at least in that time frame, it's extremely attractive. And then when you add on to that this whole concept of, you know, you own your own wealth and you have a sort of protection against instability, that's also something that resonates very well culturally. Um, given that, you know, it's a different, uh, governance environment, uh, and then also potentially, um, there's on average a greater desire for stability, right? So you add all of that together and there's various aspects of crypto that appeal. So ironically to people who desire stability on one end, uh, and sort of the whole censorship resistance, you and your money type of concept. And then ironically on the other end to people who just want to trade it, um, as a pure speculative asset. right? So I think that's one thing that uh, that's kind of a consumer context uh, or a user context, um, which is a little bit different from what I at least I observe uh, in a place like the U.S., where the narrative is more broadly around um, sort of censorship resistance. And then this kind of being a a, like securities 2.0 type of platform, right, securitizing assets, uh, making them sort of more transparent and tradable. Um, and, you know, blockchain, not Bitcoin types of applications. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 the appeal of trading and speculation for um, Western populations, at least in my in my kind of uh, in my experience, is actually fairly down the list. Um, so I think that's very different. Um, and then I think that uh, when you uh, look at all the also the regulator's perspective, they're responding to sort of the different consumer consumer interest in this. um and then uh, and then you know, on top of that, because some go- some governments are more open than others, you know, if they're less open, then they perceive this as being a little bit more of a risk, and that certainly kind of uh, uh, filters into into the regulatory approach as well.
0: So, we had also talked about the the population demographics in China and it, there is an aging demographic there where you know you have 1.3 give or take billion people but there is more of an aging demographic there and then you've seen you know more technology like you know home robots and more automation there to take care of the aging population because there just isn't enough supply to actually help all those mm-hmm. um But what I'm curious is that from a demographic point of view, from what you've been able to see over there, I also know that China, especially the population, uses a lot of electronic payments. They use Alipay, they use WeChat, and I've seen stories where tourists from China go over to Japan, which is not necessarily set up for the infrastructure necessarily for a lot of digital payments – and they've had to really speed that up over the last year or two because they just don't have the means to take a lot of the digitized uh, digital payments. And so I'm curious, you know, from the demographic point of view from China, I'm not asking you to speak for the whole country, obviously. But from what you've been able to see, does the older population also use a lot of those digital payments?
1: Um, I think that if you use a cell phone, um, and most people do because it's been sort of a mobile first um, adoption of technology – then because the payments are so easily integrated into that um i would say uh it's a a higher proportion than you'd probably expect for you know uh people of a similar demographic using i don't know like a paypal or square cash
0: certainly interesting um because i i just think that that's you know I, i know that obviously bitcoin is a store of value and that we're supposed to you know obviously once it becomes more of a you know effectively a medium of exchange that eventually then it will become more of a store of value and it becomes something that you want to hold on to because a lot of people are using it things with backed and starbucks where we can start using bitcoin eventually when they have a clearinghouse and whether or not you, you agree with that i'd like to let you i'd like some you know for you to kind of opine on that um but getting to the kind of the the tail end you know from leaving china and then going to earn you know you came in there this is not a, you kind of, uh, came in there in the way they were, but they needed, you know, earn needed a lot of help, and you came in there and you did what you did. And so, talk to us the last kind of the last leg at earn.com and kind of how that then transpired to the acquisition from Coinbase.
1: Sure. Uh, so, you know, I think about um, those three years as um, really being two companies. Um, now, the same legal entity kind of persisted through those two years uh, or through those three years, but really the first uh, year and a half was a company called 21, um, which was uh, an early Bitcoin miner, um, had done really well before the economics of mining changed pretty significantly for a couple of reasons, um, and then fell on pretty hard times because essentially uh, it spent too much money on a fixed cost base um, and these very expensive contracts that were you know, between three and five years, right? Uh and that was really just uh just killer for twenty-one. And you know, by the way, uh that really happened to the entire Western mining uh kind of ecosystem, with the exception of Bitfury. So, you know, if you kind of turn back the clock, there was um there was KNC Miner, um, there was, you know, uh a bunch of uh, butter uh butterfly or or something like that. Uh, there was probably like, you know, a, a pretty uh, it was a pretty substantial number of, um, folks in America and also in Europe who tried this and it didn't really work out. Right. So, uh, and so that was, um, really just the economics of mining changing very quickly and washing out a bunch of people. Um, so then the problem we had with 21 was, um, you know, small and diminishing revenue in a very large, uh, fixed cost base. And that just, uh, uh, that just doesn't work out. Right. So we had about, um, uh, negative 50 million in long-term liabilities, 30 million in, uh, cash at the time. Uh, uh, so the 50 was net of the 30, to nine months of runway, uh, and the product, which was Bitcoin mining was not really a viable product anymore. Right. Um, and so, uh, so we had to figure out, um, how to restructure that from a corporate standpoint, which was, uh, what I spent a lot of time on, uh, and then also rebuild the team, rebuild, find a new product, uh, bring that product to market. Um, so the first year and a half, um, we had a lot of work to do on the corporate side. Uh, and then really the second year and a half, um, we landed on, uh, this concept of, uh, what became earn.com, uh, and we're building that as a business. Um, so, uh, so, you know, it was, it was pretty challenging, um, and it wasn't, uh, sort of entirely clear what the outcome was going to be at the beginning, uh, but it it worked out.
0: And for those that are not familiar with earn.com, it was, I really enjoyed it because at the core, as someone who has been in the market for a while or someone that is a engineer or someone that has a lot of specialty or experience, a lot of the times you might get pinged on linkedin or on social media or you might get a cold email and saying you know here's a project i'm trying to do please help me you know you know i'm looking for some expertise i'm looking for your opinions and as we all know we only have 24 hours in a given day and a lot of us have our day jobs we have our families we have our hobbies we have things that obviously occupy our time and so Mm -hmm. this notion of almost you know monetizing that time that you would give to someone was something that I found very special with Earn because it puts a validation It says, okay, I am I am an expert or I am, I, am, I am very specialized in this area. You know, if you want my time, whether it's an hour, whether it's two hours, you need to actually validate that. You need to actually say, okay, you are worth this. And this is what I'm willing to obviously give you for that. And so it actually, it worked really well. And I enjoyed that platform. But tracking back to to Bitcoin and to the, your entry into the into the ecosystem formally, um, I know that you were very it, it was very personal almost in a sense from your background growing up about the value proposition of of Bitcoin. Um, talk to us a little bit about kind of how you see it as being so valuable to society and what it can do.
1: Yeah, well, <clears throat> um, I think that um, you know one of the broader trends that I see happening right now is you know, consolidation around, uh, kind of two nation state systems or call it political systems, if you will. Um, and I think, so I think that, you know, obviously one of them is, uh, is the U S and the U S led kind of Western, um, Western, um, uh, Western, you know, world. And then I think that obviously the other one, which is, um, becoming, uh, increasingly relevant is China. Right. So, uh, I wouldn't be, I'm terribly surprised if, you know, over the next decade or two, um, you have, um, you know, something which is, uh, has some similarities to what happened during the cold war, where you basically had these two very, um, powerful sort of countries that were these sort of foci, um, uh, in the broader political system. Right. And, um, so I think that is developing. But then, you know, so in a way, you have sort of increased centralization and sort of competing between these two different polls, which is evolving and has been evolving for some time. Um, and, uh, uh, and then on the other hand, what you have is, um, you know, you have a lot of, uh, you know, individual citizens, not just in America, what we w- witnessed with the 2016 election, but really throughout uh, the Western world. And then, you know, I would say, you know, more broadly beyond that, um, of individuals who um, are you know, having uh, less and less trust in their central institutions, and in uh, our feeling sort of more um, autonomous as, as individuals to sort of have choice over how they spend their time, right? How they monetize their time, um, how they make a living for themselves, and basically more global markets, more global li- uh, labor markets. And I think a lot of these trends. Um, are uh, are competing with one another, right? On one hand, sort of the central the re-centralization of the nation state sort of governance system, um, and then at the same time, indiv- individual citizens actually trying to pull away from that. Um, and so, to me, um, what I see in cryptocurrency is, um, you know, the most I would say even the most successful kind of part of crypto right now has really been the um, the narrative around it, right? Uh, around decentralization, and it's really sort of hit a nerve with people around the world um, because of uh, because of that sort of uh, secular trend that I see happening.
0: Okay, do you think that do you think that's just not governments? The whole notion of centralization in terms of the platforms that we use too, do you think a lot of people might, this might kind of resonate with them because of that too. And without naming names of platforms, but there have been obviously some social media platforms that have come under scrutiny over the last few years. Do you yeah. think that that also resonates?
1: Um, I think so. And, you know, and I, I think this is also just a sort of historical ebbs and flows that so there's constantly sort of the trade off between more centralization and more decentralization. And I think we're seeing, um, uh, I think we're seeing a turn of the corner um, right now Um, But uh, so maybe, you know, it is essentially a repeating historical trend or maybe it's a little bit different because you have so many new technologies that are really sort of step changes in what you're able to do. Um, I'm maybe a little bit more in the latter camp, but I see, you know, cryptocurrency and uh, starting with starting with decentralized money as actually enabling sort of the desire to, you know, decentralize a little bit. Right. Or the desire to sort of have a hedge against these very large existing governance systems. Um, and, uh, and I think that is important because, you know, first of all, checks and balances are always important to have, um, and, you know, enabling sort of, uh, freedom of choice for, you know, smaller, um, smaller groups, whether so there's individual or sort of smaller communities, I think it's just really important. Um, and I think a lot of that starts with, um, having independence over, uh, over, um, your, you know, how you make a living and fundamentally money, right? Um, and it starts with that. If you have freedom of your money, then you have freedom over how you spend your time, uh, and you have broader freedom of choice, right? So it's really at the trailhead of, um, of basically enabling a check and balance against what I see as, you know, on a geopolitical scale, is being the sort of, you know, uh, trend towards uh, extreme centralization.
0: Do you think? You know, one of the things I've been wrestling with is that, and correct me if you, you can obviously rebut on this, but I'm happy. If you do, the mining of Bitcoin is fairly centralized at this point, correct? If I'm, if I'm wrong, tell me if I'm wrong.
1: Um, I, I don't know that uh, it is. Um, I think we'd have to sort of first align on what does decentralize actually, decentralization actually mean for mining? How do you measure it? So on and so forth. I think the production of machines is um, probably fairly centralized because there's a lot of technology that goes into that. But then, uh, but I actually think what's happening right now with um, with prices being down is it's been pressure for decentralization, right? And for mining to flow to folks that have the lowest cost of production, um, and you know have basically a lot of latent industrial resource that they can dedicate towards mining because
0: otherwise it's just sitting fallow. Do you ever see a time and place where everyone in the world will be able to mine Bitcoin?
1: Um, I don't think that's going to be the case with proof of work mining. Um, uh, I think that, um, it's likely to stay sort of the province of needing some, you know, pretty substantial amount of industrial resource. Um, because it's always going to be power intensive, which means you need to have power density and power infrastructure. But what I think it's going to be is decentralization, not not necessarily to an individual doing it on your phone, your computer or something like that, um, but uh, rather sort of bringing online um, unused uh, computing resource, right? Which there's actually quite a bit of in the world um, and finding a way to make a lot of that useful. Uh, and for that for me, that's a broader theme for uh, you know why cryptocurrency is able to um, make new economies and make new markets. For me, sort of one of the broader themes about around cryptocurrency in the long term is um, basically making markets in these latent uh, digitally accessible resources, right. Um, I see that happening with mining right now, where uh, and I think what you've already seen over the last couple of years is folks that are sitting on, you know, maybe an old steel plant somewhere. Right. Um, Hundreds of megawatts. This happened in Texas and Kentucky and upstate New York um, and in Canada. They're thinking, okay, well, this is a way I have all this built out stuff, which is almost literally rusting. Right. I can make some money out of it. And if it makes sense, it's purely economic. Then I'll do it. Okay, So that's one way that that's like, you know, very literal sort of intersection of um, of, you know, Know, Bitcoin or crypto and, uh, and latent resources. But then, you know, I actually started to see Earn in that lens as well, where, you know, everyone has, no matter how important you are, you've always got free time, right? At least a few, few minutes of free time every day, um, standing in line for coffee, standing in the back of a taxi cab, right? Or I should say an Uber these days. So uh, to me, um, what crypto is able to do is uh, basically make those latent resources, which are digitally accessible, uh, monetizable. Uh, and that's what I thought was really powerful about it, uh, because to me, um, one of the broader kind of themes within technology really is basically creating these new markets, right? Creating markets around detention, creating markets around, uh, around sort of uh, clicks, digital advertising, uh, which is obviously a very large industry, creating markets around unused, um, you know, uh, habitable space in your home um, around sort of, uh, transportation. And those have all been very large businesses. Uh, and so when I think about the power of cryptocurrency, those are that, ty- those are the types of, uh, types of applications that I get excited about. Right. Um, so, uh, so that, that's, I don't know if that's a little bit of a tangent from your question, but, uh, that's the perspective that I've been, I've been thinking about.
0: No, I think that's, that's interesting. It's, I, you know i'd like to, to see a day where you know more people can obviously participate in in mining um you know there's been certain iterations around startups like coinmine that are providing little kind of systems that you can buy and can start you know mining either ethereum or bitcoin or some other of the coins out there you know it would be nice to see that but i understand from the perspective obviously you need a lot of power you need you know obviously for the proof of work algorithm you need you need to have sufficient services in place to do that but to kind of you know switch the gears a little bit in terms of some of the things and you know investment you know kind of theses in crypto some of the things that we're, we've been talking about either on the show or some of the things that you see out there in, uh, on social media, um, there's been a lot of talk about decentralized finance or hashtag DeFi. Um, mm-hmm. I'd be curious to kind of get your opinions on what's happening in that world and whether you see that's a good thing or a bad thing.
1: Um, I think it's, um, I think it's, you know, interesting. I'm glad that people are uh, working on it, uh, experimenting with it. I think it's um, still sort of in a proof of concept stage. Um, I don't see a lot of the stuff is really being, um, sort of truly production ready, uh, quite yet for, you know, uh, for, uh, really large scale adoption. Um, and, uh, so I think the concept of the, the concepts the underlying concepts, um, really fascinating, right? So started off with, um, uh, with an interest in decentralized exchanges that was, that kind of kicked off 2018. Um, and then, uh, you know, sort of one of the longest-standing um, uh, successful or success stories uh, to date has been um, uh, has been, uh, um, you know, Runes uh, startup uh, so maker. Um, I think um, I think there's just a number of a number of uh, elements of infrastructure that need to be built, um, and then also the regulatory framework to be figured out. All those things take years. Before it's truly ready, um, and then, uh, and then, even if that does work, then the question is: Is it really ten x better than using Fidelity or Schwab? Um, you know, one of the things that I find to be interesting right now is if you actually talk to most of the people in crypto, um, most of the uh, most of the people in crypto um, keep most of their money at the same bank they did five years ago, right?
0: <laughs> right, that's true. That is very true. Um, in terms of in kind of the, the split that we have within the crypto asset universe, um, we have the public markets and we have the private markets. And the public markets have seen a fairly significant capitulation, which we do not need to go into any more conversation about everyone. And their grandmother has talked about it. Um, but then we have the private markets, which have relatively stayed fairly healthy in terms of valuations if you think that pre-money valuations that are fairly excessive is a healthy sign. But You have not seen a a price capitulation up until a certain point. You've started to see that recently, but I'm curious to get your hot take on kind of the public and private markets, you know, from an investor. If you put your investor hat on, you know, you've advised family offices, you make investments yourself too. Where would you, you know, obviously not investment advice and nothing on base later is investment advice, but you know, where do you see value kind of accruing today? Where would you be more excited if you were talking to someone who is not, been exposed to crypto yet, where would you kind of say this is a good starting point, either in the public markets or the private markets?
1: Um, Well, for me, the um, 80-20 answer is, you know, frankly, Bitcoin. Um, And I say that for a few reasons. Um, So I think I try to think about stuff in cryptocurrency from a uh, usefulness, from a use case perspective first, right, rather than a uh, technology first and then sort of how is this, how do I uh, how do I. Use this technology to solve the problem. So, you know, one of the one of the primary critiques of crypto um, has always been that, you know, this is a solution looking for a problem. Okay, so if we think about the problems first, what are the problems that this solves? Um, knowing very well that with new technologies, sometimes you know it's hard to see where where you know where uh, the problems are because it's outside the status quo. Okay, fine, right? So, um, so the clearest value proposition to me, which is also happens to be a very large market, um, is uh, store value, right? uh and so when you say digital gold um then it's something that resonates with a lot of people they say okay yeah you know i understand why that should exist and i understand why uh bitcoin um has similar enough properties to gold but is much more accessible uh infinitely infinitely divisible accessible from uh from you know uh from anywhere you can basically have an internet connection so on and so forth and it's better in many of those ways um okay so uh so then if you think you know, there's store value and how this is, how does this become valuable over time? That's also a story which is fairly easy to understand. Um, and then, you know, when you add onto that, the regulatory sort of status of a Bitcoin versus something else, right? Um, then you can see a much clearer path to, uh, to how Bitcoin uh, could gain ever greater levels of adoption, right? And then if you marry that up with uh, sort of the facts of the situation and where we are right now, I think it actually kind of validates that thesis. Um, and so to me, uh, that is really the 80-20 answer, right? I think that Bitcoin is so far ahead of um, of alternative crypto, of other crypto assets or, so, you know, so, uh, altcoins or tokens or anything uh, anything else um, within this category of store of value that it's likely to sort of take that spot for at least, you know, the, the short and uh, certainly short and possibly medium term. Um, okay, so then uh outside of that, well, you know, what else is gonna have value, right? Uh why is it gonna be valuable? Um, and I think it's just a much harder kind of perspective to take with um publicly traded assets, uh, because, you know, they're being used either for speculation um today and or the ideas long term, they're basically a way uh sort of um very painlessly and very quickly accessing computer resource and also paying for it at the same time. Uh, but then the issue with that is uh that, you know, if you think about the supply and demand for computing resource in the long term, then uh uh then, you know, it's pretty hard to see how that's going to accrue value to a token. Right. So therefore, I think if you're uh if you're putting money, if you're deploying capital against uh things outside of Bitcoin, then uh, to me, it's very, very risky. And you're more likely trading rather than investing. Because it's just difficult to see how there's a long-term value creation thesis there.
0: That is a super interesting take. Um, And what we're going to do now is kind of what we like to call our lightning round um that is not for lightning labs but although we are big fans of lightning labs and olympus park thank you um but this is our lightning kind of round where we call it signal to noise um and- all you have to do is say signal or noise, but you can obviously opine a little bit if you feel that you uh, have something to add more to it. But we'll just go through a few of the kind of market making news items, if you want to call it that over the last you know few days and see if you believe that they are signal or noise. So the first one, the CBOE, the, first, the issuer of the first ever Bitcoin futures contract, has decided to suspend trading due to lack of interest. Obviously, this does not mean that uh, Bitcoin futures are going anywhere anytime soon. There are other places to go. But do you think that the CBOE kind of uh, suspending that is signal or noise?
1: Uh, long term, it's noise
0: next one um, so as of the last few hours uh, coin market introduced a grading system for crypto uh, it's I think they're using a system called crypto asset score um, do you think something like that from uh, it, I think this is actually from flipside crypto do you think something like that is a signal or noise in the market that we're starting to see those entrants into the space
1: um, I think it is noise
0: interesting Um you know the other things that we're starting to see so a few things that have happened obviously on the retail side we have as i mentioned before backed you know working with starbucks but now we have a swiss retailer digitech gallicus which is uh, launching a cryptocurrency payment they're accepting bitcoin ethereum um looks like binance and a few other different coins out there and i think they do about a billion dollars in revenue so having a retailer that is that size accepting bitcoin do you think that's signal or noise
1: Um, I think it's somewhere in between the clarifying question I'd want to ask is, um, are they, uh, actually, uh, receiving Bitcoin, Ethereum, BNB, or are they, uh, using a service like a BitPay, right? So for example, Microsoft, yes, they accept Bitcoin, but it's not like they're holding Bitcoin, right? They just use BitPay in order to to transition that into dollars.
0: Interesting. Um, and then two last ones. So the launch of Cosmos, their their mainnet launching a few days ago, Signal mm-hmm. and Noise.
1: Um, I think that is Signal. I'm a fan of theirs.
0: Awesome. Um, and then the last one, you know, just because I am still a fan of it, and I think it's had a massive social kind of imprint the LN Trust chain. Mm-hmm. Signal and Noise.
1: Um, I think that is. Uh I think it's good marketing. I think we need to do more things like that, that make, uh, that raise awareness in a simple way for crypto.
0: Awesome so the last part of our show we usually like to talk to people that come on and ask them a little bit about things that you know they're either reading or listening to it it helps to kind of you know understand how you might be what inputs you're putting into your brain when you're either writing or you're Mm -hmm. looking at things so what music are you kind of listening to on a day-to-day basis um and then the last like 30 or some odd days, you know, what have you read, you know, that has been a really, that has left a good imprint on you that you think uh, is super interesting?
1: Um, let's see. Uh, well, I can tell you what's on my reading list. Um, my reading list next is I want to read more of the um, uh, original works on sound money in Austrian economics.
0: Mm. Interesting. Do you have any recommendations for people out there?
1: Uh, well, you know, the classic is Hayek. Um, and I remember thumbing through it, you know, some years ago, but I wanted to go and, uh, and spend some more sort of concerted time with that.
0: Awesome. And obviously that's pretty deep stuff. Anything on the fun side, any sci-fi, you know, there's been fans in in crypto that are sci-fi fans, anything like that? (laughs)
1: Um, let's see, what have I been, um, looking at right now? Um, honestly, I've been spending so much time on, uh, architecture that that is really my fun reading right now um reading about uh um sort of more let's call it physical world considerations
0: interesting um lily is uh she we had a little uh, fun talk before the podcast uh going through some architectural things over there and that that's uh, i can appreciate that for sure um Probably spending some time at Home Depot too, um, and so in terms of listening to music, do you listen to music? Do you find anything that is fairly emotive when you're either you know working or kind of l- looking at different projects? As if you put your investor hat on, is there anything that you listen to that you you find interesting?
1: Um, yeah, so um, so I've also sort of uh, gone back to personal basics a little bit, and um, you know as a kid I spent a lot of time doing classical music, playing classical music, um, studying classical music. So I've recently been spending more time listening to you truly the old evil goodies. So, uh, chamber music, opera, um, and that's a whole other conversation.
0: Love it. Love it. Music is really important. And I've, you know, I'm a big fan of lots of different types of music, but I've found that, you know, there's a lot of people out there, especially in our universe that are listening to music without words. And so that usually is ambient or classical or, you know, some forms of electronic music. So I I find it really interesting, again, as a unifier amongst us. Um, but this was a great chat, Lily. Thank you for joining us on Base Layer. Um, for anyone who wants to see your work or wants to, you know, you know, get in touch, do you want them to check you out on social media? Do you write on Medium? Is there any place that people can find a little bit more about you?
1: Um, sure. I've uh, started to tweet a little bit. Um, my Twitter handle is c a l i l y l i u c a Lily and folks can feel free to DM me there.
0: Awesome. again, this was Lily. Um, What a pleasure. What an experience. What a history you've had so far. Thank you for what you've done. And thank you for joining us on Basslayer. And we wish you the best and happy one soon again. Thanks, Lily.
1: All right. Talk to you soon.